This is Erica in Edmonton, Shannon in Durham, and Chip in Durham. And you're listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5, episode 23, Points of Departure. And here we are. It is so exciting to be starting a new season. There is so much excitement. In fact, we could not contain it amongst just the three of us. So we have a guest. Once again, joining us, we have Jason Snell of the Incomparable Podcast Network. Hi, I'm so, Jason. I'm so happy to be here. I don't think any space kids die in this one. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Yeah, what are you doing here for a a, a not uber depressing episode? This is very strange. I don't, I don't know. Well, you didn't ask me to choose, so <laughs> <laughs> so here I am. I'm very excited to be here on the episode that proves that the audio guide to Babylon Five wasn't a podcast uh, just covering season one of Babylon Five. Mm -hmm. Yes, we are we are excited to be moving on into season two. But before we do that, Jason, I'm just curious about your thoughts on season one, sort of as a whole, in a nutshell. I, I don't know enough about Babylon 5 fandom to know whether um, this is uh, an unpopular opinion or an incredibly common opinion. But, uh, you know, in hindsight, season one of Babylon 5 isn't the Babylon 5 that I remember. It's weird. And it's not just the fact that there's a different lead actor, as we discover in this episode, mm -hmm. but that the way it's shot and um, the, the way that the story arc is essentially non-existent in most of the season because they're doing a lot of table setting. I don't think of the first season of Babylon 5 as the necessary part of the show as much as it is um, just laying the groundwork and, you know, it doesn't look as good. It isn't, they, they don't know how to make the show as much. So when I saw this episode, I watched this episode in Chrysalis, which is absolutely a fantastic episode. I watched them both back to back and you know, you get to points of departure, and I'm, and I just think to myself, oh yes, this is Babylon Five. This is my Babylon Five. So season one, you know, it's got its moments. It definitely does, but it all to me feels a little bit off because I know what uh, what is to come, and knowing, you know, having seen the rest of the series, I know that it's uh, quite a bit of an outlier. So I feel a sense of relief that that. Um, the podcast has moved on and the rewatch has moved on to season two now because season one is not only rough sledding, but it just it, it's just it's not, you know, it's just not the same. So really nothing's the relief. same anymore. Yeah, nothing's the same anymore. Delenn is a butterfly now. <laughs> anyway, uh, spoilers that aren't real because I just made a joke. Anyway, yeah. it's, it's she kind doesn't of like turn into a butterfly. OK, OK. <laughs> Sorry, new people. You can take that out. You can bleep the word that I just said if you'd like to destroy my joke. Anyway, I would say, Jason, that it feels like The Hobbit compared to The Lord of the Rings. Not necessarily in terms of, you know, one of them's more kid-friendly than the other or anything like that, but they do feel like sort of separate. I got the feeling that Chrysalis was the first episode of Real Babylon 5, but, uh, you know, this one's this one's a point of departure, wouldn't you say? Mm. Ooh, title significance. Mm -hmm. All right. What about you, Shannon? Is relief how you're feeling jumping into series two or? Um, not relief, because uh, there are a lot of things about season one I do enjoy. Um, I do like that we had the time to really go through and build this world uh, and get everything into place before the action kicks in. So just excitement that, you know, here, here we go. The things are getting going now. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Well, let's let's get into talking about it. First of all, if you happen to be jumping on with us uh, here at the beginning of season two of Babylon 5, here is the basics of what you need to know. Babylon 5, the eponymous space station, is located in neutral territory. It is run by Earth, but was intended to be a place for humans and other races to work out their differences. The Minbari in particular have played a role in its formation. Uh, in fact, the Minbari determined who would run the station. That was Commander Jeffrey Sinclair, who did his very best to make it the kind of place it was meant to be, a United Nations in space working toward peace. And that brings us to our first episode of season two, Points of Departure, in which Captain John Sheridan of the Earth Alliance starship Agamemnon is tasked with locating a rogue Minbari war cruiser called the Trigati. But that's not all he's tasked with, not even close. Captain Sheridan is also tapped to assume control of Babylon 5, as Commander Sinclair has been reassigned and won't be coming back. Can you say bombshell? Sheridan is apparently a controversial choice. The Mimbari not only weren't consulted, but they call Sheridan Star Killer, as he gave Earth its only victory in the Earth Minbari War by taking out the Minbari flagship. Sheridan is unapologetic about his history and takes a pretty hard line with the Minbari. He's also pretty savvy about their culture, avoiding an attack on the station and open war by ordering his fighters not to fire on the Trigadi, as the crew just wanted to die in battle. They did get their wish when another Mimbari cruiser appears to take care of the situation. The Trigadi is destroyed, and the Mimbari who did it are not happy about it. Sheridan is definitely on their radar. Oh, and Security Chief Garibaldi is still in critical condition in MedLab, while Ambassador Delenn remains in a cocoon, which is now leaking some sort of viscous goo. And yes, I did just end on viscous goo. <laughs> yeah. well, so that's what that the episode is... does. <laughs> it sure does. So, so right off the bat, jumping right in, we've got new opening credits. So that's a very big sort of difference because a whole bunch of different things change. And as a matter of fact, you know, maybe this is a good time to uh, to do a little insert we've got here. Um, as I as I said last time, Stephen, my husband, who's been watching it with me for the very first time, is much better at noticing kind of the, the differences that pop up uh, on the show, the um, sort of more technical and direction and set-based types of things, whereas I'm just watching the characters. Um, so he was kind enough to record just a, a brief little bit, explaining some of the differences that he noticed and Let's take a listen to that now. So, we begin a second season of Babylon 5 with a couple new cast changes, one of them a monumental one, a new title sequence, and some improved visuals. But due to the nature of the plot and the fact that this story takes place one week after the events of Chrysalis, the season 1 finale, there weren't quite as many differences in the overall design between season 1 and season 2. Because this episode has to introduce Captain John Sheridan as the new star of the show, it focuses on him at the expense of almost all other major characters. Garibaldi and Delenn are still in their respective comas of sorts. Londo and Jakar are absent, and of course the telepath is nowhere to be found. So we have a lot of time to learn about incidents in Sheridan's past that might affect his future as the new man in charge of Babylon 5. We also learn a lot about the now-departed Commander Sinclair and his mysterious connection with the Minbari through Lanier, who sits down for story time with Sheridan and Ivanova. I can't help but wonder how much of this backstory was brought forward by the writers to accommodate Michael O'Hare's sudden departure, but it's kind of sad that we were robbed of this conversation between Delenn and Sinclair that was being hinted at throughout Season 1, and then neither of them are present for it. 
Janet Greek, director of Chrysalis, also directed this episode, and, and this continuity helps smooth the transition between the two seasons, although it's worth pointing out that Chrysalis was shot midway through the production of season one. Apparently a production decision at the start of season two was to increase the camera exposure, which makes the resulting image brighter, but what it also does is allow for a more layered lighting approach in this episode. There's more opportunity for shadows and texture, and as a result, this episode looks significantly better than the episodes in the first season. Another big change this season is the opening title sequence, which is completely new, and the revamped opening music is much more exciting and intense. This is also true for the incidental music from Christopher Franck, and the CGI is much more impressive this season, with the space battle sequence, especially those shots of the Minbar fighters flying past Babylon 5's Star Furies. All in all, it's a confident start to a new season that perhaps wasn't as big a splash as I was expecting, but the changes and improvements that were made were subtle and successful. So there you have it. What do you guys think? Did you kind of notice some of the same things that Stephen did, or were you like me and didn't notice that the lighting was different and all that kind of stuff? <laughs> I think for me, it's what I mentioned earlier about the feeling being different. I think some of that is is the technical stuff that Stephen mentioned, that he does... It feels brighter. It feels more expansive. I, f- I feel like they, if they changed the sets, they also learned how to shoot the sets over the course of the first year. It just, it does feel technically very different and brighter. And I think his point about the the lighting being different, and I, I you know, I, I attribute a lot of my sort of like, oh, this feels more like Babylon Five to be um, many of the things that Stephen's talking about. Yeah, I think I unconsciously or subconsciously noticed um, some of the things that Stephen described, just sort of attributing it to just in general, slightly, maybe wider camera angles, like when we go into the captain's quarters, um, when Sinclair was in the captain's quarters during season one, it felt much darker, that seemed like this just there was a lot more black around, whether that was the stuff he had there and the way he decorated or what. But seeing Sheridan go into sort of the empty space, and that there wasn't such a tight shot on him and Ivanova, but it was a little bit broader. Those kinds of things registered, but without knowing exactly maybe how it was done. Yeah. As a Doctor Who fan, I have an inherent fear of excessive lighting because you start th- <laughs> you start thinking about uh, late Peter Davison and the point when the directors just didn't care and just turned on all the lights and the sets had no character to them whatsoever. So when I heard that season two was going to be brighter, I worried because I like the moodiness. But uh, Stephen makes a really good point in his uh, cutaway here that they take advantage of the fact that they're um, opening up the camera lenses a bit, letting more light in to have a much broader tonal range throughout everything. So the lights are lighter, but the darks are darker. And you can see everything more clearly, except for the things that the director does not intend for you to see clearly. So all in all, it does look, to my eyes anyway, noticeably better. Also, a tiny little uh, note about the uniforms. It's it's a subtle thing, but it makes a difference. Uh, the piping on the Earth Force uniforms in first season was black. In the second season, it's red. And that is purely just to show off the detail, to draw the eye to the detail in the uniforms a little bit more. It's it's a tiny little tweak, but it's a sign that, as you said, Jason, they're learning what they're doing. 
Wow. Chip, I think you win the prize for the most detailed nitpicky watching because <laughs> piping on the uniforms, I'm, I'm impressed. That is something I did, definitely did not notice. I think I, I got that feeling too. Um, Stephen described it as being a more confident sort of a thing. And I, I agree with that. I do think that they've, they've gotten their feet underneath them by having done all of these previous episodes. Um, and, and it definitely adds a sense of confidence in the production. Do you know, do you guys know, was the budget any higher for season two? Or was it about the same and it's just that they were better at using what they had? Not a I don't clue. Know. I, I, I would imagine that it probably wasn't, but they already had a bunch of standing sets. And they, they mm-hmm. shot this in out in the valley in uh, north of L.A. And I, I imagine it, it was it an was old factory or something. And so they... Um, because I went there, Chip. Ha! Uh, and uh, I have to drop that every time I'm on this show now. Aren't um, you special? Yep, yep, yep. But it was it, my point is it was way out of the way, and I doubt that it wasn't like a studio lot where they would clear out the sets and then put some other show in there. So I imagine most of the sets stayed up, and that probably helps because they didn't have to spend some of their season budget on all of those new sets. And they did build some new sets, but I think they, they had the advantage of having a lot of this stuff already made. Um, I wanted to mention in the opening credits, you see two pretty amazing effect shots that are presumably from uh, forthcoming episodes. But they, they've got the two-level uh, walkway shot where there's people walking on a second level, which is is totally crazy. And there's that Welcome to Babylon 5 like cr- mini crane shot where you're really high up with the people coming out of a corridor and there are those screens. And that those are signs of either confidence or money or both because those are not just... I think both of those are composites. So it's, uh, you know, they're, they're more... They're using their technology a little bit better to try and make things look more interesting by doubling, you know, doubling their sets and things like that. Yeah. Speaking of the opening credits, that's those aren't the only new things that we see. Uh, we've got the new guy doing the voiceover. Oh, my God. And he's and then he has the line, the year the Great War came upon us all, uh, which, you know, kind of a mouth dropping thing to hear on the first episode of season two. Um, we also have a new Natoth, uh, even though we don't actually see her in this episode. It's a it's a different actress playing her. Um, do you guys remember what you thought of this the first time around? Were you surprised or had you known about a lot of these changes that they were going to be shoving in your face right at the outset? Chip? The thing that I remembered the most was because I I knew that uh, Bruce Boxleitner was coming in. So I don't think any of us uh, around the table got that good uh, first impression. But the thing that I latched onto was the five transition, the five dissolve in the credits, which is so much better, so much slicker than the uh, than just the 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 blank star field with the chirons in the first season, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's uh, again just a symbol of it's like it, it's it's like the collars in third season Star Trek: The Next Generation. You know, it's just a little talisman of quality. There, it gives the show some dynamism and the shots that are chosen for the character shots, they make the actors look good. They make the characters Mm -hmm. look substantial. Uh, That shot of uh, Londo bursting into laughter, and that looks (laughs) a little sinister, actually. Um, It really does put the show off on on a firm footing. And the um, opening voiceover with Boxleitner, which, you know, thankfully... 
we get before we go to, we go to the credits, we get uh, General Haig saying that Sinclair is not coming back. Yes, so that's key. So that is that it is helpful to get that out of the way before we have a voiceover led by somebody else. And we can talk about this a little later, I suppose. But Box Leitner is so much warmer and more approachable than O'Hare, and now, I think that adds a lot too. Now, you you guys um, have been talking about this effort, this huge effort that Chip has gone through to get <laughs> Erica and Stephen the the uh, broadcast credit sequence instead of the one that's on the DVDs. I wanted to throw in. I think I remember why that this occurred, which is. Um, and it's actually on the Lurker's Guide, and I, I distinctly remember it, is when these episodes originally aired, the early season two episodes, Box Lightner's voiceover, he had recorded um, in an empty room. He had no visuals. They hadn't made the opening credit sequence yet. And I remember distinctly it being stilted and strange. Yeah, and then and then they re-recorded it where he could see the sequence, and though that got dropped in, you know, whatever five or six episodes in, and I think what happened is on all reruns and on video, or, or maybe it's just mm-hmm. on video, they used the good one, and it is good, but it also drops in a spoiler visually mm-hmm. there. But I, yeah. I I distinctly watch it now. I remember, oh, this is the good voiceover because the 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 original was not so good. <laughs> no, as a matter of fact, uh, Box Leitner just dies on the line the year the great war came upon us all he just reads it flat whereas later on when you see that energy beam uh slicing into a narn ship and it's falling over you know he his voice just goes grim and almost sinclair like with the the year the great war came upon us all it's much Mm. yeah it's much better yeah jason did you know that all of these changes were coming or did the first time you saw that credit sequence was was some of it a shock for you I was enough of a Babylon 5 fan that um, that I was on the internet and um, knew that they were replacing Michael O'Hare with Bruce Boxleitner. So I, I knew I knew that was happening. And none of us knew what was going to be in the cocoon. But we did we did all know and that and the, the credit sequence kept that secret. But we did all know that um, I think that that. Uh, Sheridan was in and Sinclair was out. And uh, I remember and the, these episodes did not air depending on where you look. I'm not sure whether they whether Chrysalis aired a little early in the UK um, or whether it aired at the same time as the US, but it, it was no more than a couple of weeks before the the uh, first episode of season two aired. So it's a, the, this was a very close thing. So it's really weird because it's like Sinclair, as in the story, Sinclair was just there and now he's gone. I also, I'll take this point to say I'm glad you invited me on this episode because it's all about one JS leaving and another JS coming. And so you got to have a JS on your podcast, too. Joe Straczynski, he's really killing it for people with the initials JS. I'm just going to say I tip my cap to him. (laughs) Shannon, what about you? What was your reaction the first time you saw these credits? I think the first time just... Definitely piquing my interest, um, as, as you all said, the, the dynamism of the cast presentation, just how much more intense all of the visuals were in general. Um, yeah. The fact that most of these shots showed conflict brewing, which went in tandem with the idea of the year the Great War came upon us all. That's a kind of line that you know has me going <laughs> like, okay, wait, when, what, how? You what know, a tell me more. Tell Amazing. me more. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I certainly remember, I think, getting interested and excited seeing it the first time. 
All right. Well, so so let's jump into to talking a little bit more about the the story itself. What about this new guy? So we've got we've got Sheridan Chip. You already said that you feel like he's warmer, um, but he's also apparently a controversial choice, and and he may have more warmth, but he's certainly taken a harder line with the Mimbari. Uh, how do you see that sort of playing out on screen? Well, before we talk about the Mimbari stuff, I'd like to talk about just how real he is. Michael O'Hare and Sinclair, and it's it's a function of both the actor and the character. They are both a little more remote, a little more damaged, a little more spiritual may not be the right word, but very thoughtful. You know, that line that Narun gives in Legacies about you talk like a Minbari, you know. Uh, Sinclair, he's a hard guy to wrap your brain around a little bit, and I think that that was probably a problem for the first season in terms of audiences falling in love with the show. Sheridan walks onto the station. He's carrying his own bags because the the loaders were the loaders. malfunctioning. And he looks a little uncertain, but he's going ahead and taking the reins anyway. You, you see a little more vulnerability as well as toughness. And I like the way that he starts his speech in CNC kind of trying too hard, you know, over-delivering it, and then he settles down into it. He's a more conventional leading man, and I think that that works for this show, and I think he comes across as pretty instantly likable in uh, Points of Departure. Uh, yeah, and he, and, and, and never... this, is coming, this is coming from a guy who really got Sinclair and really appreciated him and kept... And obviously, over the last 22 episodes of the podcast, I've been evangelizing for him, practically. <laughs> but but you, you never have Sinclair babbling about fruit. <laughs> no, the, you no. don't, honestly. Yeah, that that's the kind of thing. What I found interesting about Sheridan was, you know, on the one hand, he's presented as obviously a capable and trusted leader. The opening sequence mentions that he scored the only victory in the Earth Mimbari War. And yet, as he comes onto the station, even though it's mentioned that he and Ivanova know each other and, you know, he can be instantly more comfortable with her, he's still babbling about, you know, getting to eat good food. It's a little bit good old boy. I, I don't know. That's not quite the right term for it. But <laughs> he he's definitely not the, as Chip said, the more remote figure of authority that Sinclair was. Uh, it's, and it's really amusing since I've been getting on Tumblr and the ba- Babylon 5 fandom there. They run with the oranges thing. They run with it <laughs> so freaking much. It, it is hilarious. I had forgotten that he throws an orange up at the end of the episode after he finishes his speech. That's yeah, he, crazy. He, he had one tucked back, ready to eat. That's, yeah, you gotta, you gotta love that. I, I, I love Sheridan. Um, I, I think it's really important that Donovan knows him because th- th- this episode tries so hard to let the viewer let down their guard and, and accept Sheridan. It's really funny how, and I think necessary, but having Ivanova in his corner, um, really helps the fact that he's practicing his speech in the hallway before he goes in you sense he's nervous i enjoy the sense that, that when he starts talking about showers and fruit that um you know he's been way out in a starship way way out for a long time so mm-hmm. he's sort of used to military discipline in the far off and now he's back to to being like he says you know it's a he's a military governor or something is that in this episode i don't know uh, but it's like that he he's um he's he's got civilians and aliens and it's not his 
it's not the job he's had, and so he's not at ease. So he's competent, but he's totally not at ease. And only Ivanova gives him any kind of lifeline at all, and that gives us a little bit of a lifeline with him. That like, oh, our friend Ivanova um, likes him, so that's okay. Um, that's that's a little more trustworthy than like, let's have dinner with with the doctor and and the doc and Franklin says, well, he seems okay to me in a scene that we never actually saw. Right. Um, <laughs> Um, <laughs> that that's a little bit weirder, but the Ivana tie I think really goes a long way to selling uh, Sheridan to us. Yeah, two quick points about that. Uh, number one, I really find it interesting that Ivanova is instantly more comfortable and warm and friendly with Sheridan than she ever was with Sinclair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They warmed up to each other over the course of the first season and pretty much culminating in the episode in which uh she sits shiva and mm-hmm. and he and he shows up there uh and also a voice in the wilderness but they still never get to the point where she instantly is with sheridan uh and i think that 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 is really helpful it may reflect greater level of comfort behind the scenes on stage between the actors who knows but uh, that is important i also I was just saying that was something that I suspected as well. I felt like the character of Sheridan really just puts everybody at ease. Whoever is in the room with him, he has that way about him. People just naturally feel more relaxed. And I I wondered if that was something that was happening behind the scenes as well. That he as an actor might be the kind of actor who just puts his coworkers around him at their ease so that you get a perhaps a stronger, smoother performance. Um, I will be interested to see what happens in the upcoming episodes to pay close attention to that since there, there wasn't a huge cast here. So we didn't get to okay. see a whole lot of interaction. Right. The other point I wanted to make is that towards the end, Sheridan is still dealing with issues of, uh, you know, am I the right person for this job? And he, more than any other character in this episode, misses Sinclair because because he recognizes that the Minbari trusted Sinclair, that Sinclair didn't have the same baggage that Sheridan is bringing on to Babylon 5 without the benefit of loaders, and that uh, Sinclair probably, although uh, Ivanova hastens to point out that there's no guarantee of that, that Sinclair probably could have come out of this situation a little more smoothly. And I I think that it is a good thing for the episode to not only try to make us really like Sheridan, but also to be realistic about the fact that this is a transition, that if there are fans who got attached to Sinclair, and there were, that um, this isn't just a drop-in Sinclair replacement. And it's also not a competition. It's clear that Sheridan is not trying to, you know, he's not like the the new stepdad trying to take the place of the old dad and just be the dad. He is he is recognizing that he is stepping into a role that was somebody else's and and that he's going to need some help to to get to be as good at it as he can be. I neglected to list in the in the uh, this episode's assets the uh, the scene where. Sheridan does directly question whether Sinclair would have done a better job. And that is yet another way that it gets us on his side is, I I mean, this is a, I think, almost a textbook example of a script trying to do a character transition. Because unlike many shows where the written out character never is mentioned, it's like they weren't ever there, or we'll mention them briefly and then never mention them again. Sinclair is a participant in this entire plot, because all of the Mbari stuff that happens is 
tainted with the idea of like, well, what did you do in the war? And we had Sinclair at the Battle of the Line and we sent him, you know, we made him the commander here and now he's being sent somewhere else. And all of that is buzzing around, which I think, again, really works towards Sheridan's benefit. Sheridan is wondering how he fits in the show. Sinclair is still a presence in the show, even though the actor isn't there. It's it's I was uh, impressed by how much. Uh, Sinclair there is in this episode where it could be very easy to try and soft pedal that as much as possible and just like new guy moving on forget the old guy and that doesn't happen Mm -hmm. well speaking of Sheridan and how he fits into things let's jump back to the Mimbari now they don't seem particularly happy about this so um, Shannon what did you think about the way that this played out between um, Sheridan the new guy and the the Mimbari reaction to it well I think it segued very well into the opening credits notion of the Great War coming, that the idea of conflict is building. And one of the ways the conflict is being set up is uh, EarthGov has pretty much just thumbed its nose at the Mimbari by choosing probably the one person guaranteed to make the Mimbari furious uh, about Babylon 5. Uh, This is the one captain or the one uh, leader who scored a huge victory over the Mimbari in the war, they don't like him. <laughs> they don't like him at all. And the Trigati is, of course, um, obsessed with the idea of redeeming themselves somehow. And, you know, they zero in on on Sheridan as their target. So it, it's definitely a controversial choice. Um, I get the feeling that with the transition of power from um, Santiago to Clark, that uh, there's this underlying idea that it's kind of implied that Santiago chose him, but I'm not sure if it was him or Clark. They um, said they actually said that uh, Clark claims that Santiago's uh, choice, you know, his predecessor's first choice to replace him was. Yeah, and we don't know about that. But certainly with the general tone of season one of um, the factions uh, on Earth and somewhat in EarthGov not liking alien influence, you know, this is the perfect choice to score points back home. Um, yeah, so. and uh, Clark uh, Clark in his uh, inaugural speech talks about putting the resources and the emphasis and on 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 our people back home and things like that. So yeah, that it, it all tracks. Yeah, so a very deliberately controversial choice on the part of EarthGov, and we will see what plays out. Well, before we move on to the uh, the other characters, the, the few other characters we get in this, does anybody have anything else to cover with uh, with good old or good new Captain Sheridan? A couple of things about Boxleitner, um, his his presentation. Like I said, he's he's taking the character and doing a great deal towards making him very likable and hopefully very acceptable to people who are not expecting him. Um, but he gives a pretty nuanced performance in places, even more so than the sort of babbling, just happy to be here type. Uh, at the point where he makes his decision to tell the Star Furies to hold their fire, he thinks he's figured out what the Mimbari are up to, and he thinks he knows how to stop them. Boxleitner gives this, you know, sort of slight look up to heaven, like, God, let me be right. Um, <laughs> it's very subtle, but it's there enough, you know, for you to catch that he he's not 100% sure about what he's doing, and he knows it. And that lends a bit of a bit of extra depth to the character. Yeah, I noticed um, that that moment as well. I've got that in my notes, too. Chip mentioned um, that Sheridan is more of a conventional leading man. And I had the exact same phrase in my notes. <laughs> and I was thinking about how uh, Joe Straczynski always has talked about how 
He was a, an original Star Trek fan. And Sheridan's got a lot of Captain Kirk in him in this episode where he's puzzling through something. And, and, and that's a very, it's a very Kirk kind of thing as the ships are coming toward them. And he's like, no, we're not going to f- fire. I figured out what's going on here. That struck me just as a very old Star Trek kind of thing, um, which is to, to its credit, I think. And uh, I really like that. It make, makes me, wins me over to Sheridan even more that, that he's, he's figuring it out and, and this is all happening in his head. And as Steven said in his um, drop-in that we heard, that scene where the Mimbari ships, I'm already a sucker for Mimbari ship design in general, like the big fish that, that, that are their warships and then these little like pods that are their fighters. But that scene where the fighters are just flying by the Star Furies and then the Star Furies are kind of popping around, it, it feels... Mm-hmm. It looks, it, it just is, it's amazing looking. The the real kind of like zero G physics that are happening there and the crazy ship design, it, it, you really, um, it's spectacular. So that, I love that. And that's in the midst of, meanwhile, back on the, on the uh, command deck, uh, this uh, question that Sheridan is having of like, am I making the right decision here? I'm putting these guys at risk. And the fighter pilots are like, what's going on? Um, <laughs> I, I just, I love that whole like minute that that's happening. It's just amazing. And it gets us on Sheridan's sign just that much more that he's fretting about it. Yeah. I also like that Sheridan immediately picks up on the fact that when Colleen is confronting uh, Lanier and had bundles of opportunities to just shoot them. <laughs> and we think that it's just dramatic license that mm-hmm. he's just standing there forever. And then Sheridan and the security guards come in and all that stuff. But no, in instantly in the interrogation room, Sheridan says, you could have shot him at any time. You know, the things that don't make sense about the plot, whether it's the Minbari plot or the plot of the script, are almost immediately lampshaded. And we're told that, no, you didn't miss anything. There's a point to this. And we keep on going. And the fact that we see Sheridan work it out all the way through is, again, another point in favor of making us like the new guy. Yeah, he really does seem to to kind of know his stuff. Not only is he, he quick to f- puzzle things out, but, he, you know, he, he may have been the only one to destroy a Mimbari worship, but he also apparently knows quite a bit about their culture. He immediately says, you know, or how how would you know this high ranking member yeah. you know, of this of this He's other great council? He's got to be. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, that's, that is insight. Mm-hmm. He's he has studied the the <laughs> past enemy, apparently. So he. Yeah. He knows what he's talking about. He's All just right, he's not just this jarhead. He is he <laughs> he is the sort of character that you would expect to be uh, the captain of a deep explorer ship that's doing a lot of diplomatic work and other things like that. It, he's hey. he is not the guy that the Minbari think he is. Hey, Doctor Who fans, this is a regeneration episode, essentially. The script has to do a lot of work to get you to understand who the new guy is. And it's a good job, but it is that. It is like, oh, new leading actor. How is he different? How is he the same? How will he fit with our existing cast? And I think does a pretty good job. Right. With the exception that it doesn't do the cardinal Doctor Who job of trying to convince you that it's the same person. The, no, he's right. got the same job, but he's not the same person. Also more oranges. <laughs> yes more oranges and more speechifying <laughs> actually david tennant uh has a, in his regeneration episode has key scenes involving citrus fruit so i mean really i think <laughs> the true. parallel is clear 
<laughs> well, let's move on to some of the the few other characters that we got. Um, we had some, a few scenes with Ivanova, who seemed to me to be very relieved not to have to be at the top of the food chain anymore. <laughs> well, if we you had to boss around aliens like a kindergarten teacher to a room of five-year-olds, yeah, you'd want a break, too. Uh, yeah. <laughs> How did everybody feel about that elevator scene at the beginning? Oh, that is so funny. It is so funny. I it love that scene. It shouldn't be, though. It shouldn't be. It should be pantomime. It should be over the top. And somehow, Claudia Christian sells it. She does. Uh, they're, they're terrified. And then she get, leaves and they fight again. But they're just, they are terrified of her. It's that fear Ivanova thing. It's it's a, just a thing of beauty to see that. And then later when she says, she opens up to Sheridan and says, I'm so happy you're here, basically, because <laughs> this has been terrible. And I do not want this job anymore. And here, have it. It's yours. <laughs> Another great uh, Ivanova. Ivanova is at her best when she is put upon and uh, feels that she's being plagued. definitely i feel like i can understand how some people might have wondered you know why didn't they just put her in charge and my response to that would have been well first of all look she clearly doesn't want it but this is a a very very high ranking position and they're not just going to move somebody up to that sort of a big political spot so i think the elevator scene sort of helps show that that you know her, her way of dealing with these people is not sit down and find the compromise it's to shout them into submission yeah, scare the hell out of them. Yeah. <laughs> um, we also had uh, a, a bit of Lanier in this, as we mentioned, you know, standing up as a, a brave defender of his cocooned mentor, um, making sure that, that Colleen doesn't get through to her. And I, I love his line about, well, you know, if you're not going to shoot me, then I have a lot of work to do. Yes, that's wonderful. <laughs> he threatens with his uh, his pinky finger kung fu move which I, mm-hmm. uh, makes me laugh every time I see it. No, Bimari Kung Fu, it's really serious. I extend my fingers. I love that. <laughs> he could do some serious damage with those fingers. I believe it, because mm-hmm. once again, we have the actor really selling it. Yes, the elevator scene should have been just over-the-top laughable, but Claudia Christian sells it here. And, and every time that I have seen uh, Linear take this stance, uh, the, the, the first time in the strip club with, uh, with Londo, I immediately was just completely I, I bought in i was like he is he is a tough guy and he means business and he could kill me i think it has a lot to do with the fact that bill Mooney plays lanier fairly submissive and thoughtful and almost schoolboy like most of the time so that when it's time to get serious and he there's just this laser focus in his expression and that the contrast is strong enough and Bill Mooney sells it well enough that, that, you, that you believe it. And then we get a tiny, tiny bit of Dr. Franklin. He doesn't have a lot of lines, but I quite appreciated the brief scene between him and Ivanova where he's explaining mm-hmm. the, the prognosis. I, I thought it was a little bit weird that he is suddenly explaining what they did to Garibaldi eight days later. <laughs> I, I, it didn't get the impression that it took them eight days to stabilize him. And yet mm-hmm. he was explaining all of that to Ivanova. So I, I thought that was a little bit of the, the exposition dump, but I, I liked his yeah. delivery of it and the fact that when Ivanova kind of points out, well, you know, is he ever going to wake up? And he's an honest doctor and is just kind of like, well, maybe not. And then at the end, he comes back and says, oh, I talked to Sheridan, which we haven't didn't see. And that drives me crazy every time because it's like, I don't believe you. Well, Did you really talk to him? Things can happen off, off screen. I know. I know. It I mean, I mean uh, uh, the, Frank, the Franklin line is, I haven't seen much of him, but what I've seen, I like. So maybe he just saw him walk past in the hallway and he was like, I like the cut of that guy's jib. (laughs) (laughs) That is the the moment where it feels like the script's working too hard to make me like him. 
It's like, hey guys, the whole cast got together and we decided this new guy is great, so the show's going to be good. And, and that's the that. Like I said, <laughs> I think so much of this is done well that that scene where they're sitting there at at Earhart's, which is a fun, I think, new set with the with the forties music and all of that. That's like the officers' lounge. Um, that that part didn't ring true, true to me. The people who we haven't seen interact with Sheridan just sort of like puffing him up because. You know, I think it's all going to work out. It's like that's that's when they turn to the camera and are, I feel like and are looking at me saying it'll be fine, fam. Yeah. Giving a giving a little wink. Yeah. And a side and a side note to our listeners who are new to Babylon Five, uh, that's why we call the spoiler threads Airhearts. That's ah. where the name comes from. Wow, the threads were themselves a spoiler. <laughs> but they didn't know. No, they didn't know. That's good. It wasn't a spoiler. It was a teaser. That's there, what it was. There we go. There we go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and speaking of uh, of that scene and, and people talking about uh, Captain Sheridan, we have our, our other new guy who is actually in the opening credits, Warren Keffer. Um, he's not in the episode a whole lot, but um, what are your first impressions of this new fellow who apparently is going to be somebody important enough to get his name in the credits? He's the, the face of the common soldier. That that that's that's my impression from from watching that episode way back the first time that he was there to be the voice of um, all of the rank and file military types that are on the station there to do their job. Maybe that, although that, that, that well that first scene you know it, it's so classic with him watching the hollow letter mm-hmm. of, of his girl you know his girl back home and then he you know gets interrupted by one of his guys and grumps about it until he stands up and sees what's coming. Oh shoot! Got to do my job now. Yeah. Although I'm assuming that fighter pilots in the Babylon 5 universe are similar to fighter pilots in uh, the modern American military or something like that. They're not really ground pounders. They're, they tend to be sort of elite. So uh, I'll be paying attention to uh, Keffer um, in, in, in future episodes, but he does seem just sort of coming out of nowhere. And I don't know why he's in the I don't know why he's in the opening credits. I don't know why he's in this episode. I don't know why he's sitting at Earhart's with the other cast members. It feels a little tacked on, he said obliquely. Uh, the, <laughs> as a, a fan of uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, I, I was watching this thinking this is exactly actually the joke that they pull in the third season of Buffy, where suddenly Buffy has a sister and it's never explained why she's there until like several <laughs> episodes in. And it turns out there's a mystical, magical reason why. But this is a little like that, where it's like, oh, our, it's our buddy Keffer. They're having dinner with him. We all are pals. We've never seen him before. Did I miss something? Was I not paying attention? Um, that so that's And that makes that scene that I already said I kind of don't like. I, I like it even less because Keffer's like there it's like why how do you know this guy where did he come from i love the idea that um you want to humanize the people who are in the fighters because you cannot have your commanding officers run down to the fighters every time there's a problem right and the first season that happens a bit and it's a little bit silly right so i like the only like... the only fighter pilot characters we get any significant screen time with are the guy who gets killed in babylon squared uh, and then we go, and then Sinclair walks down there uh, for the rescue operation and things like that. Other than that, they're just nameless extras, right? Yeah. So, so it's a good idea. Um, also, I think that this is a, not a very good actor. I think that scene with the um, with the hologram from home and all of that is <laughs> not his line reading in that scene 
it, he's not making a very good first impression. I mean, I don't think the dialogue is particularly good either, but he's not making a great first impression. I'm not a, I, I'm definitely in the who are you and why Why do you think you should be in this show uh, kind of mode. Oh, thank him. goodness. I, it's I'll not be just forgiving me. to Sheridan. I was just like, <laughs> oh no, I think he's, I was, I think he's awful I was thinking, actor. I was thinking, this is, oh great, we've got another Michael O'Hare situation where there's somebody <laughs> whose performance I just can't stand. Just, I had an immediate gut negative reaction. It was just visceral with that first line reading like you yeah. said and and yeah i completely agree that the dialogue is maybe you know he doesn't have the the deepest stuff to say but then we circle around to the the episode at the end or the the uh at the end of the episode of the scene in Earhart's where they're walking in and he's he's saying and i don't i'm not saying i mind staring down a bunch of mimbari and i'm not saying i mind blah 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 but i and it was just it was like fingernails on a chalkboard his delivery of those lines <laughs> was just Oh boy! His first line, his first line is mumbly, and I, I want to, I could say that's the director. There are a couple scenes in here where I feel like somebody didn't quite get their line clearly enough, and they didn't retake it, and maybe they were just feeling the pressure of time. But with that, I also wonder if they just couldn't get the actor to really talk straight, and that was the best they could do because he, he sort of says, "Can a guy look at my girlfriend with the meh? and it's like, I, what is he even saying there? Doesn't matter. Move on. They're watching TV. They're Mimbari on the TV. They're gonna have to scramble the fighter. So I like the idea of Keffer, but I don't think yeah. the actual Keffer uh, measures up. I it's nice did... again to see him out in the out there when the Mimbari are out there. It's like, oh, it's that guy. Like <laughs> I get it, but yeah. But I, I wish it was a different not, guy. <laughs> I did not take an in, I did not take an instant dislike to him, but I did not understand why the character was there. Yeah. Why are you having dinner with our friends? Who are you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, speaking of Michael O'Hare, I, I did experience a little bit of sadness when I was preparing for the podcast, realizing that we don't have any more Michael O'Hare check-ins because I, 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 I miss him more than I thought I was going to. I'm really enjoying Sheridan, but I do feel like there is, there is something missing um, and I will get over it. I, I know because I've seen the show before, but, but I, I'm finding myself surprised at how much he became uh, the heart of the show in a lot of ways. So, so you, you know, Chip, you never completely won me over into the pro Michael O'Hare camp as far as his performance. But I think I came a good long way, put it that way. Is it fair to say that you came a further way with Sinclair the character as opposed to O'Hare the actor? Yeah, well, I think I, I don't think I ever had as big a problem with Sinclair the character as I did with the performance of the character. So... So I would say as far as where I ended up, I think I I think I appreciate the character even more than I did in the first place. Um, and I appreciate the performance somewhat more than I did in the first place, which was not at all. So <laughs> there you yeah. go. I get attached to characters I like. Um, I'm, I've, 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 I've got attachment issues that would probably make the 10th Doctor look like, a, you know, just a Zen master or something. Um, I get attached to people and things and all this other stuff. And I got attached to Sinclair and I miss the character uh, in in this episode. But that's that's by design. The episode is designed to make you feel the loss of that character, even as it is warming you up to the uh, not the replacement character, the new (laughs) character. Mm. And I think this does a great job of giving consequences to change. Very well said. And I think that's uh, probably a pretty good place to wrap it up here. We've been going for a while before we jump into spoiler territory. Of course, we have homework for next time. 
We are continuing right along with season two. So the next episode for you guys to watch is Revelations. And we look forward to talking about that with you next time. But between then and now, uh, please be sure to visit us online, b5audioguide.com. And as now you know, Air Hearts is the, uh, is the spoiler space. So if, if you're going to be jumping off ship at this point, stay away from there, stick to the Zocalo. Um, but you've got both choices. And of course, then there's Twitter and Tumblr at b5audioguide. Uh, Jason, where can folks find you online if they are interested? You can listen to many podcasts of a similar form to this one at theincomparable.com. You can find me on Twitter at jsnell. And I write about technology things at sixcolors.com. Fantastic. All right. Well, for those of you who are not wanting to be spoiled, we will wave a fond farewell as we jump into spoiler space. So here we are, guys. Does spoiler space look any different here in season two? Sheridan is not Valen. <laughs> nope. Hooray. Oh, well played, Chip. Well played. <laughs> uh, well, speaking of Sheridan, I would I I want to talk about him a little bit more because I feel like there were some things I couldn't really say without giving stuff away. Uh, for me personally, like I had started watching the show well after this. So when I first saw season one coming into the beginning of season two, Sheridan was the captain that I really knew and remembered. And watching here now and paying close attention to to his his entrance into the show, to me, he is really Sheridan immediately. This is the guy that I remember from from all the way along. I don't see him having a lot of trouble falling into this character. To me, it seems like he's just it right off the bat. What do you guys think? Jason, did you did you think that or do you feel like he changed a lot? No, this is the guy. This is, I, I, you know, they cast Bruce Boxleitner. They knew what they were going to get. Um, this is Scarecrow from Scarecrow and Mrs. King. <laughs> this is Bruce Boxleitner. You, you, you know, he does what he says on the package. And again, apologies to fans of Michael O'Hare and to fans of, of I'm Sinclair. okay. I'm okay. I, I, this is this. <laughs> I think this casting decision makes the makes the show a success because he is he is a traditional leading man. He makes everybody around him better. He brings a weight as well as a familiar familiarity to the to the part to the show and suddenly this show that was you know trying hard but kind of uh you know kind of underpowered and a little bit obscure suddenly a guy that we all recognize and is instantly likable is at the center of it and i feel like this is the moment where you know if you're babylon 5 you're like hey we're just we're like all these other shows we got a we got a great um lead actor in this part in a way that Sinclair was an interesting character, but he was not like Babylon 5 starring Bruce <laughs> Boxleitner is that that is what we have here. And, I, you know, like I said, this is this is the show now. And from moment one, this is the show. This is the guy. Uh, he's going to take us the rest of the way. And I, I do love the character. And, you know, it, this is a transformative moment where Babylon 5 like changes a few things including it turns out this disaster of a problem with having to change your lead actor out and goes to like just it's a perfect shot they get they get the right guy with the right vibe he doesn't feel too boy scout but he he, he it's an interesting character it's well defined and the actor is incredibly likable and it's a home run I almost feel like, you know, the, the change in the, the exposure on the cameras to make it a little brighter. To me, it almost feels like, you know, Bruce Boxleitner walks in and it just it brightens up the room, literally. 
He's glowing. Uh, he is. Shannon, what do you think about, about Sheridan now and, and compared to kind of where he goes in the future? I think this time, really thinking about it, I appreciated a little bit more his as I said earlier, sort of good old boy impression, um, especially given the revelation later on that he's actually part of the group in the government that is trying to figure out how Santiago died and the, and that there's a conspiracy in the government and they're trying to root it out. That sort of helps explain that, you know, he's, he's there on a mission um, that he can't talk about yet. And that sort of helps me to explain a little bit of his most most egregious, not that, not and I don't mean bad, but some of his most egregious um, friendliness, I guess, is, is the word I'm looking for. It meshed a little better for me this time around. Yeah, um, he tries too hard, it seems, but there's a point to that. And it doesn't happen so much in this episode as in a few episodes uh, later. Mm-hmm. Sheridan has a clear arc. They were trying to give a similar arc to Sinclair, but Sinclair's going from damaged person in over his head to big damn hero. They later on retrofit and then it's going to be damaged person to next that best thing to God, but that'll be in uh, that'll be in a couple of years now. Um, Sheridan's arc is hero to legend or soldier to legend. You know, he he is he is on the he is on the way to legend and he's starting at a very relatable place. As much as I want to resist what Jason's been sa- what Jason said about the power of star power, because <laughs> you know I, I don't I don't want that to matter. I want it to be all about the the actor and nothing about the marketing or anything like that. I have to admit that both in the way that Bruce Boxleitner performs and in the way that Sheridan is written and in the way that everybody knows who he is, he just lifts the whole show. He just lifts it. And the other people around him are coming with him. I didn't want to talk about this before we get into the jump gate. But as we've said before in the spoiler section, Michael O'Hare had serious mental health issues. That is the reason why he left the show. If you read Claudia Christian's biography, which was written before JMS pulled the veil off and explained all of that, Claudia Christian did not care for Michael O'Hare. She thought that he was a bit of a a bit of a bully, like he just sort of expanded to fill the space and didn't leave room for other actors uh, to uh, to go in. So everything changes with uh, with Boxleitner and with Sheridan and the show is so much the better for it. And it makes it, I think, more believable to see where Sheridan winds up compared to if it had been Sinclair in that same position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I and last time we talked a little bit about a, a comment on our website about the differences sort of between Sinclair and Sheridan and how one of our commenters thought that that Sheridan was not as complete of a character because of his sort of uh, more kind of happy go lucky outlook, I think is, is sort well, of the, what v- it... the very fact that he's more conventional of more conventional leading man. I think that that was mm-hmm. I, I think that commenter was taking some shots at Sheridan for that reason. Mm-hmm. And I find that that especially, you know, the, the line um, from the end of the last episode, the, you know, nothing's the same anymore. Uh, and the differences in the way that those two characters would would deliver that line. I had said that 
that that Sheridan would would deliver it with sort of a, a sense of of disbelief. And I don't think that that means that he is a less well developed character. I just think he's a very very different kind of character. Um, I think that Sheridan. Yes, he has been through a lot. He's been through, through through war and stuff. But I don't think that a character has to be damaged by the experiences that they have had in order to be a good, worthy character. Um, I mean, I live with somebody who has a very sunny outlook, no matter what happens. So I, I think that, that that kind of personality type actually does exist in the real world. And it doesn't mean that they're an unfinished character. They are, he's just simply a different kind of person. I, I get a little bit annoyed, especially these days with with sort of the idea that that dark and brooding equals good automatically. I think that that is that is a terrible outlook and that it is just wrong. So for me, this sort of change to a, a a somewhat sunnier character when it comes to just kind of the way that they carry themselves on screen, uh, that's part of what really worked for me, the fact that that Sheridan is is sort of a more optimistic fellow, I guess, overall. And that's not even quite the right word, but just the fact that, that he is, is not quite so beaten down by things. Um, I, I think that's okay. I don't think you need to be just because you've been through trauma. Well, and to be honest, that comes later for Sheridan. That was my, my right. point was that the, the two characters are just at different points in their arc that moves them from one level going up to the next. Um, you know, Sinclair has already been through torture and uh, capture and all of these things, even if he didn't remember it for a lot of the season. Well, that's what Sheridan's going to go through in season three. But even after that, I don't feel like Sheridan ever reaches the the sort of lows that that Sinclair kind of did. Sheridan, no, but you know, it does he's, change him. It, yes, I mean, he makes marked, him harder and makes him mm-hmm. firmer, um, there much is more that, determined than ever to um, to end things on his terms. There is that moment when he uh, when Garibaldi frees him from captivity in season four. When Sheridan has been tortured and all that stuff, they pull him out of there and Sheridan with a PPG shoots, repeatedly shoots one of the guards that had, that had captured him. And that's pretty damn hard. Um, mm-hmm. But even so, it's as you said, you know, he's gone through that and he still comes out after that accessible. Yes. Well, as far as spoiler space in general goes, it's it's kind of hard to know exactly what to cover because this episode is really turning quite a corner. The entire vista of the rest of the series is now stretching out before us. So is there anything, you know, what stands out to you guys about what is to come in relation to what we have seen in this episode? Chip, start us off. As Stephen pointed out in his uh, pre-roll, it is kind of a shame that the um, the secret to the Battle of the Line is taken care of in exposition in a table conversation scene between characters who had nothing to do with it. That's mm-hmm. that's a real tragedy to the fact that with Michael O'Hare not available and there mm-hmm. being no way to do a proper handoff. I mean, you have to go to the B5 comic books to actually get that, which is kind of, you know, disappointing. But – it's sort of the last vestige of the original plan because we hear so much more about the Minbari soul migration here. And then we're pretty much not going to hear any more details about it at all. The fact that fewer Minbari are being born, we will never hear that again. Mm-hmm. The, the parts of the same soul kind of thing 
does inform the creation of the Rangers, and that's going to be helpful going forward. But really, they just get it out of the way. The, Sinc- the, the Sinclair arc is not about soul migration. It's about Valen. And the rest of this stuff is largely going to be forgotten. And that's a bit of a shame. Shannon, have you noticed anything in particular? You're always good at picking out little things that I completely miss. <laughs> what kind of continuity <laughs> stuff did you did you spot here? Um, well, the one thing that sort of leapt out at me, I'm frankly not remembering at the moment whether it was in Chrysalis or in this episode, but just a feeling that um, we were seeing the first glimpses of Lanier's devotion to, to Delenn that is going to turn into, you know, his... W- unrequited love for her that sends him driving off um, to go join the Rangers because he can't stand to see her and Sheridan together. I think I mentioned it to Chip, at least, and he told me I was maybe reading a little too much into it. Maybe I am. (laughs) But that definitely crossed my mind watching some of his performances as he's standing guard over her. Or Whether they had decided to do that or not yet, the the way that he performs that scene absolutely fits in with it. So mm-hmm. so I, I don't I don't think you're reading too much into it, but maybe we're both just reading too much together. Yeah. The only other thing I could think of, and I kind of wish I'd mentioned this in the pre-spoiler space since it's mainly about this episode, um, but I really liked in JMS's writing how he echoed the themes of honor, what what is honor, what is what is dishonor. Um, not only through the Mimbari's dialogue and actions, but also uh, Sheridan's speech at the end, when he finally finishes delivering his speech and quoting Lincoln and so forth, he brings up the themes of honor again to show that this is you know something that is somewhat universal among the cultures. So that kind of Thank leaped you. out at me. Jason, did you recognize anything that that made you think forward? Yeah. Um... I got a few things that that uh, some of them are are sort of not spoilery, but that I, that I had on my list that I, I didn't get a chance to bring up. One one is Sheridan Starkiller and the the ship that he destroyed is the Black Star, um, which informs directly the White Star that is um, oh, that's sleep true. that is created later. It is meant to echo that, which I I, I really like. I appreciate that this isn't what uh, on the Lurker's Guide they claim Joe Straczynski claim was originally the title, which is Chrysalis Part Two, because honestly. Oof. Um, one of the great things about this is that it's not Chrysalis Part 2, and if you were going to call this Chrysalis Part 2, the next three episodes would have to be Parts 3, 4, and 5. Because <laughs> one thing that, that does not happen in this episode is Delenn doesn't come out of her cocoon. We don't see where Ambassador Jakar went. We don't really get anything with Londo and finding out what's going on with Londo and Mr. Morden. Uh, Space Mob, by the way, made me laugh out loud. <laughs> I love that. Um, none of that is here because this episode is about introducing Sheridan and we're going to get to the rest of it. There's too much to fit in. And rather than kind of like get half of everything, we get the stuff we need here. And then the, you know, the next couple of episodes will get us a lot further along. And I I like that, that, that um, this partially because it's a new leading man, you've got to introduce him, but partially because um, there's too much story to play out here. Uh, Some of it has to wait. And I think that, I think that's great. Um, I think that's one of the things that I really like about Babylon five and the fact that it is so different from the way TV's made. Now we've, we've got 22 episodes in a season, so you can stretch things out like that. You know, for all the times that Stephen has pointed accusingly at the screen in the opening credits when Talia Winters comes on because he knows she's not going to be in the episode. Um, I, I think that that's OK. And that's a good thing. I don't want all of the characters shoved into every single episode. I want to see the bits and pieces and, and let it breathe. 
the Minbari stuff. There, there's a lot of good Minbari stuff here. We mentioned it briefly. The fact that there's so much friction in the Minbari that they're not so many science fiction aliens are all one thing, and so we already know that there are these multiple casts. We've got the Trigati. There's just a whole ship of Minbari. They're like, hey, we don't like that you ended the war. We're gonna just go off and do our own thing for a while. That's crazy. Um, and and then we get the uh, thing with Robin Sachs who uh, is in the Grey Council, and I love this actor. He was on Buffy as well, um, and I, I think he's sufficiently like grumpy and menacing while not being the villain, which is really interesting. And then you've also got Kalane, who kills himself with a you know a Russian spy tooth <laughs> poison thing. But um, I, I like that's the... F- He's like a punk rock Membari who, uh, and I really love that. I mean, the way he's the way he's dressed and the 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 way his even like his head bone is kind of punk rock, and I really liked that. I liked that that there's this totally other kind where he's uh, there's that great moment where I, I thought you know Membari do not co- everyone says Membari do not kill other Membari, and he says maybe everyone's wrong. <laughs> I, I like I like that too. What what? But you said uh, so. I, I think there's a lot of really good little bits of Membari and those two actors are both doing a good job i love seeing um robin sachs i think he's my favorite of the you know non-cast member minbari he's he's a lot of fun um who is he in buffy he is giles's a ne'er-do-well friend from england who turns to black magic that's right okay um (laughs) so yeah uh ethan rain is his name and buffy uh (laughs) so it's good to see him here and then the only other thing i had that is not so much about the future but i didn't get the chance to mention it before we jump to spoiler space is there's that long uh, this is actually right up what stephen was saying there is a long opening shot in this where they're walking through the corridors sheridan and ivanova and they must literally have used every last inch of corridor set that they had because they're walking for a long time and it's (laughs) unbroken and they cannot have had that much set they may have in fact moved some set from the front to the back and they're walking in a circle for all i know but but i love it because it's like this is a real space station and it and it's kind of a i think it's like a handheld camera or it's on a really shaky track one of those things but i think it's a handheld camera and of somebody walking backward as they walk toward the camera and just go through and there's like stuff in the background people are walking by and it's really nice because it establishes like this feels like a, a real place this feels like a real space station in a way that a show with a budget like this should probably not be able to do and yet they managed it and i don't know whether that was janet greek's idea or joe straczynski's idea but they managed to get every inch out of their corridor sets to set the stage for for uh, season two and i i really was uh i was impressed by that i was like good job guys because i get that feeling of like this is the little show that could and they don't have a lot of budget but they somehow make it work and that was like look at you being all fancy with a big long tracking shot through every inch of your corridor set so I like that. Well, you I, noticed I know- the you noticed the corridors. I noticed the piping. The piping, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I noticed that tracking shot as well, um, in, in part because the place where Ivanova is rattling off all of the, the hilarious things that are basically status quo here now, right now for Babylon 5, and she gets to, you know, Ambassador Delenn is in a cocoon, and they actually stop. <laughs> Sheridan yeah. stops and says, a cocoon. a cocoon. And then I I think he completely flubs the delivery of that next line, I fear. Yeah. <laughs> but, yes, um, that's, the other, that's the other weird line reading in this, where I, I think mm-hmm. because it was this complicated tracking shot, they just weren't 
weren't going to do it again. That was their best take. But that's another line that's not quite right. And you can also hear some looping in various places that's pretty obvious that they had to loop the dialogue later. So there's some production issues. But I do love that cocoon. I mean, if you're going to put one of your main characters inside a cocoon, you have to... You got to laugh, right? I mean, oh, it's crazy. So I'm glad that they, they make that joke where he stops and goes, a cocoon. And and for Ivanov, it's like, yep, yeah, that's the kind of place this is. Welcome to the show. <laughs> well, one one last thing for me that I just kind of thought of as we were recording here was so and, and we touched on this a little bit before spoiler space. So it, so it seems that President Santiago's first choice for a replacement for Sinclair was Sheridan, or so we are told. And as I was watching this, I was thinking in my head, oh, I really doubt that because he's such a controversial choice that the Mimbari wouldn't like that. And Santiago seemed to be more gung-ho about reaching out to the aliens, and it's Clark that wants to to pull us back. Uh, But then, Chip, you reminded me of the fact that Sheridan is sort of here on a mission, and he's actually trying to, to suss out who killed President Santiago in the first place, which I had completely forgotten. I will be the first to admit that that, that's part of his backstory. So I guess maybe he was closer to Santiago than I had kind of remembered, and he was the first choice. Do you guys remember how that plays out, or if we ever actually get any resolution on that? We get a bit of resolution, but um, when when General Haig visits uh, the station in a few episodes, it seems pretty clear to me that Santiago knew Sheridan better than Clark knew Sheridan and Uh better than other people in Earth Force knew Sheridan. Most people in Earth Force would think the same thing of Sheridan that the Minbari did, you know. Tough Uh guy, beat the Minbari, jarhead. But that Santiago was clever enough to think ahead that if if something happened to Sinclair, if Sinclair had a rock fall on him or got shot by a guy covered in bio-armor or something Uh like that, he'd (laughs) want to have somebody that he could trust to see the big picture. And the fact that Sheridan has the veneer of a more conservative character would would just help him push through. Since Sheridan is, we're told, the late president's choice to replace and Clark didn't see any problem with him, I think that that is just retrospective evidence that this president with the face of executive producer Doug Netter was a clever sort. Also, I mean, Sheridan says, uh, I talked to the president. He knows about this Membari soul business. And that I, that impressed me because, you know, this is important enough, obviously, for that. It's been a week since Clark took office. And although Clark obviously had planned to take office, duh, 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 <laughs> uh, it, it, it uh, is still telling. So obviously Sheridan is, even if it wasn't Clark's choice, I, I imagine that, you know, this all starts to happen and and Clark is like, well, sure, he's fine. He's a hero. He's one of us, right? And it's going to turn out that that's not the case. He's not one of you. Um, and that's going to be a major mistake on his part that's <laughs> going to lead to his downfall. But it's good enough. Like, he seems fine. So Santiago's choice is fine. And then he talks to him. Um, you know, we don't see that conversation, but he, he talks to, to uh, the president, Sheridan does, right right here to give him a personal report on what Lanier said. And and so the, the connection is there. I think they didn't want to make it too hard because, um, you know, we, we do want to like Sheridan. And the more we know that he's connected to the current president after we know that this was an assass- assassination, no matter who did it, I think there's I, I think that might make you feel a little bit more oogie about it. So. We get a sense of his style in this particular episode in the fact that 
Sheridan, his military skill relies kind of on gambling. We get the description of him, you know, out of desperation, mining an asteroid field. You know, that that's kind of a gamble. What if the what if they hadn't followed him in? What if they hadn't gotten close enough to the fusion bombs here? He makes a gamble. He he thinks it's a good guess because the Mimbari can be tracked. They're not using their stealth technology, but it's still a gamble. And that is somewhat of the way he reacts all through the Shadow War. I mean, yes, he takes as much information as he can, but a lot of his moves frustrate Delenn to no end because he's gambling somewhat on what he thinks and not what he knows. JMS describes Sheridan as something of a Robert A. Heinlein hero. Mm-hmm. who will jump off of a cliff because a nuclear bomb is heading toward him and he'll figure out what to do after he's made the jump. You know, he'll he'll right. do he'll he'll do the he'll do the next thing that he needs to do. <laughs> Indeed. And then he'll he figure does the out the actual thing. Yeah, he does. And then he'll figure out, okay, I solved that problem behind me. Now I've got a new problem in front of me and it uh and, and the ground's coming up really fast. You know, what's next? In that particular case uh, somebody caught him but um but yeah but i don't know that i'd characterize him so much as a gambler as utterly decisive maybe instinctual and his instincts for the most part seem to pan out i don't know that those two things are mutually exclusive i have personally known some gamblers who really think that they are being very decisive and that there's uh, you know that they they have solved the problem in front of them but it really is at heart still actually a gamble yeah so. that like i said in the pre-spoiler space the the fact the box lightener gives that quick expression of you know god i hope this is right that that's mm-hmm. the thing that makes me lean toward gambler that you know he he thinks he knows what's going on but he's not 100% certain but he he is going to do it. Or at very least, humility, so that he, you know, maybe recognizes that it's, it's you know, I, I think this is going to work, but he's leaving room open for the fact that he might be wrong. Chip, what, what uh, last thing did you have to take us out? Um, I would like to make our last Sinclair check-in, in a sense. And if you're, if you're a new Babylon 5 viewer who just doesn't care about spoilers, you want all of the information. Hi, Stephanie. Um, the th- <laughs> Dig around in the comic book shop in the back issue bins and try to find the Babylon 5 um, comic. And if you want to follow along with the story, you know, you might not want to rush to go through all of those comics. And to be fair, some of them aren't all that good. But the first issue of the Babylon 5 comic follows Sinclair from Babylon 5 to Earth, uh, where he has a conversation with President Clark, and you just sort of see where he went. And the first uh, four issues of the comic are basically a Sinclair on Minbar story. So that gives you a little bit of, I think it adds some color and texture and context to the series as a whole, and um, actually adds to um, the experience of watching the second season. Because since the character is available, even though the actor is not, you know, those those things that we're frustrated about, that the the conversation about the soul migration happens between Lanier and Ivanova and Sheridan. But it actually directly affects Sinclair there. So um, I recommend those first four issues of the B5 comic uh, to you. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Also, to Dream in the City of Sorrows, which is the B5 novel written by Catherine Drennan that is the Sinclair story from all the way up to just before War Without End. If you're new to Babylon 5, you don't want to read that yet, 
But if you've watched it before and you haven't read that book, you really owe it to yourself to read it. It's and going on my would, list. That would be my soapbox that I'm clambering off of right now. <laughs> All right. This has been a little bit of a long one, but I, I think that that's always worth a worthy thing to do when we have a guest. Well, Jason, speaking of having a guest, it was it was wonderful to have you back um, giving us some, some insight. And uh, hopefully we will talk to you again at some point. And maybe we'll let you choose the episode next time. I'm sure there's something thoroughly depressing. I know which one's pike. coming up for him. No alien kids died in this episode. That's all I'm saying. No cute alien kids were killed by their parents. So, yay. <laughs> We'll see you again for Confessions and Lamentations, I bet. Right. Oh, God, I love that episode so much. Okay. Yep, see, there we go. <laughs> oh, that's, that's uh, yeah, you're becoming predictable, Snell. <laughs> you know, right. I like good, I like nice episodes too, but yeah, that is one of my favorites. So, mm-hmm. you know, only 17 more to go. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you to everybody listening once again for joining us. Uh, Please, please come to the website and take part in the conversation, which I think has just been getting deeper and more interesting the the further in we go with this. We have some great comments every single episode. Um, So join us in Earhearts, which everybody now knows what that is, uh, at b5audioguide.com. And we look forward to seeing you next time with Revelations. So this is Erica in Edmonton. Shannon and Durham. And Chip and Durham. And you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. Babylon 5.